Um, we're going to be starting with the uh, Luke passage, so it's Luke 10. This sermon's going to be funny in that I'm going to start with the Old Testament and then I'm going to go to the New Testament. Sorry, the New Testament and then I'm going to go to the Old Testament. But before I even get there, I want to start with Woodstock, which is a funny place to start. But the reason I want to start with Woodstock is because I saw this documentary on Woodstock where they were talking about all the problems they had in pulling this event together. And they had the whole um, thing all organised and then with... A couple of weeks to go, they lost their venue. All the people around said, we don't want a whole lot of hippies coming in, no, 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 you can't have it now, town. So they had to find another town. They eventually uh, found uh, another venue and, uh, and you know, they started setting up the concert and they were completely disorganised, just unbelievably disorganised, to the point that they had a choice. Do we make the stage or do we put up a fence? Now... If they, make the, if they put up the fence, they can charge people to come in. But if they don't have a stage, then there's not going to be any reason to come in. So they put up the stage, and they didn't get the fence done. And for security, this is the point of the story, the security, they hired these guys called the Hog Farm. Now, the Hog Farm were a bunch of really, really loose hippies. And they'd seen them in action at other concerts. And they'd actually gone round to all these big concerts, like the Newport concert, the Altona one, the Monterey. They went to all these different concerts and they looked at what happened. And they saw police, they saw security guards, they saw, I think Altona had bikies that killed a few people. It was stuff like that. But there was this group called the Hog Farm. And basically they were just nice hippies that went around trying to be friendly and loving people and fed them a bit and did that. And that was who they hired for the security. And I remember the guy, the, the guy, the promoter's father said, you've got to be nuts. I saw those guys on TV. They don't even have teeth. I mean, <laughs> and, and they were dressed in these kind of rags and, and all of that. Anyway, they hired the hog farm and, and the event was not smooth. I mean, they expecting 30,000 people. They ended up getting something like 350,000. Um, the whole place turned to mud when they had this huge downpour. At one point, they nearly electrocuted the whole lot of the people because of all the electrics went wrong and got unearthed and all this stuff happened. And in the middle of all this were these hog farm people. And they basically just set up... What they were good at was being hippies and not having much uh, resource but knowing how to organise stuff. And so they made soup and they did all this stuff. And, and uh, everyone had a nice time and, and the, it was a, a very peaceful, sort of loving event and, and all of that. And the point is this, that you could have a bunch of people that seem to be under-resourced, but with good heart, actually were blessed by God in, in that circumstance. 
And our readings today, um, both of them actually, are the one uh, from Luke and the Second Kings, uh, likewise contain these kind of elements where it seems that the vulnerable, under-resourced people are going to be lambs thrown to the wolves, except that that's sort of how God wants it. He wants us to be vulnerable and depend on him. That's what it's about. So we get Luke 10 that says, um, after this, the Lord appointed 70 others. Now, after what? Well, after a whole stack of things, really. Uh, there was the tra in Luke 9, there's the transfiguration, there was the cost of discipleship, there's the importance of receiving the Saviour like a child, there's the rejection in Samaria, where the disciples say, um, Lord, why don't you just fly bomb the whole area? Um, there's all these things happening. And then Jesus decides to send out the 70. So it's not just the inner ring or the, the main disciples. This is um, other people that were supportive of Jesus. And he sends them out two by two. And I guess that's the first point that I, I want to make, that Christian ministry is hard. Christian ministry can be discouraging. And it's especially hard if you feel like it's you alone. Remember old Elijah? Lord, they've killed all the prophets and I'm alone, I'm left. And God says to him, well, actually, 7,000 have not bowed the need to bow. Um, you have actually got some friends. And Jesus sends out these disciples two by two and uh, to the places that he's going to come. So it's sort of like a pre-evangelism thing. Or you, you send out some people saying, the Messiah's going to come, get ready, all that sort of stuff. And so the people go out and Jesus gives them uh, some instructions about how they are to go out. And he says, um, they're to go out virtually under-resourced and vulnerable. Um, go your ways, behold, I send you. And as lambs in the midst of wolves, so they're, they're vulnerable, Carry no purse, no bag, no shoes, and greet no one on the way. So you, when you go off on a missionary journey, don't get distracted on the way. And no, you don't need money, um, you don't need clothing, extra clothing. Um, you just go to a house and whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him but if not, it will return to you. Now, this is the first sign of the power that we have. In the midst of all that lack of resource and vulnerability, there is a power, and this is the power. You pronounce peace, and if they don't accept it, you shake the dust off your clothes, and you just walk out of there. Now, Christians are not good at doing that, are we? We're not good at putting lines in the sand. We want to keep on forgiving people and being nice to people. We think that's, that's the way we should do it. But the flip side of salvation is judgment. Always. I don't know if you ever think about this, but the flip side of salvation is judgment, meaning 
you can go to uh, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believed in him should have eternal life. But if they don't receive the saviour, then they're condemned already. So you have the offer of salvation, but if you don't take it, you're condemned already. That's just how it is. You've got the chance. If you take it, you take it. If you reject it, you reject it. God honours our choice. He makes us significant beings in that sense. And then um, Jesus goes on. He says, um, so you stay at a house. Okay. And you stay in that house, eating and drinking um, what they give you, for the labourer is worthy of his wages, and do not uh, keep moving from house to house. So you sort of become a missionary in a place and you hang out with that family. You don't kind of have a whole lot of parties with everyone else. You just hang out with that party and you, you work from there. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you and heal those that are sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. The sign of the kingdom being the healing. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into the streets and say. Yeah, notice this, and say. Um, even the dust of... Um, even the, I need glasses. My Bible has Jesus' words written in red and they're really hard to read. Okay. Um, and whatever city you enter and they receive you, heal those are sick. Okay. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your city which clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest against you, yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. So you can see it really clearly there. Here's the offer of salvation, here's healing, here's the kingdom coming. But if you reject it, you are rejected. I say to you, it will be more tolerable for that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe to you, uh, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that have been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred um, in you, they would, have been, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and for Sidon in the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, Will you not be um, um, will not be exalted in heaven, will you? You have been brought down to Hades. The one who listens to you listens to me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. So in the middle of the vulnerability, we have this incredible power because we are ambassadors of the king. And that power is to do good, to heal, smile at people, feed them, do the hog farm thing. But if they reject you, they in turn are rejected. I think as Christians often in our evangelism, we are too nice. And in doing so, we sort of shortchange God and we show a lack of faithfulness to him because we don't just stand up for the truth and say well 
This is it. Let's move on to our second uh, passage in 2 Kings. Because here you get a similar thing happening, even though it's before Jesus has even appeared on the earth, in his flesh at least. Um, And in this passage, you have this the story of the uh, of Naaman and the little girl and I especially want to focus on the little girl because she sort of becomes one of the stolen generation so we want second kings sorry I'm second Samuel here I'm sure I had the mark in it Okay, so reading from Second Kings, uh, chapter 5. Now Naaman, the captain of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master and highly respected because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. And the man was a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. Now Damo's already made the point. God was already working in Aram. God was blessing Naaman. Now think about this for a moment. Aram is just up a little bit north of Israel and it was sort of like having Russia on your border because, and that's exactly how the king of Israel is going to interpret it. What do you mean I've got to heal this guy? He's looking for a quarrel. They're going to attack us. That's the way he's thinking. Okay, so Aram is this powerful country and God had blessed them, even though they weren't Israel, he had blessed them. Now the Arameans had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel and she waited on Naaman's wife. Think about this for a moment. A little girl captive. Her parents probably got killed. Her whole community probably got killed and they took a few slaves and she was one of them. That's what it's actually saying. And this little girl, instead of being a victim, I mean, she's vulnerable, she's got nothing, she's been uprooted and taken to another country, she becomes a servant to Naaman's wife, all of that. But she doesn't live as a victim. She lives, in fact, as an ambassador for God. She said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who was in Samaria. Then he would cure him him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the little girl who was from the land of Israel. Now, this is an amazing thing. You think, a little slave girl gets to tell the most powerful military commander in, in Aram about God. And he listens. And he goes to the king. And the king of Aram says, Go now, I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand shekels of gold and ten changes of clothes. So lots and lots and lots of stuff and wealth. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel. Um, Now, as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman, my servant, to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. 
And it came about when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and said, I am I God to kill and to make alive that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of leprosy? Consider now, see how he's seeking a quarrel against me. So that's how he interprets it. He thinks. He just wants to attack us. He just wants to kill us. And he's kind of thinking, king of Israel is thinking in a worldly way because he's thinking in terms of power and might. He knows that Aram's got an army, that they've got chariots, that they've got soldiers, that they've got all this stuff and, and wealth, and that they are continually hassling Israel's borders. But the man of God, Elijah, responds quite differently. And this is where, even though he is not militarily powerful or wealthy or anything like that, his confidence in God is strong. And as it happened, when Elijah, the man of God, heard um, that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with the horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elijah. I love this picture. You can imagine all the, the chariots and the horses and the stuff and the shekels of silver and gold and all this thing. And he parks outside Elijah's probably little adobe hut. And Elijah doesn't even want to come out. He just says to his servant, oh, tell him to wash seven times in the Jordan. And this really, really annoys Naaman. Because this is not religion. Is it? This is. Well, I mean, he should have come out. He should have put his hand up. He should have been a prophet. He should have done all the prophet things. He should have done the church thing. But he doesn't do any of that. He just says, go and wash in the Jordan. Get out of here. Because Elijah serves the king. He serves God. He doesn't care about Aram. He doesn't care about Naaman. He cares about God. God says, oh, yeah, okay, we'll hear him. Heal him. And he says, right, good. Now, Naaman, okay, is very angry because he says, how come I've got to go and wash in the Jordan when I've got all these great rivers back in Damascus? Um, could I not wash in them and be clean? And he went away in a rage. When you're evangelizing people and they go into a rage, you know you're on the money. Because if they're enraged, it means that they're engaged. Then his servants came near. Again, the little people. Remember we had the little girl? Now we've got the other servants. But his servants came and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet not told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. Notice that it's all the time it comes back to the little people, the little people. His flesh, Naaman, the big, strong military commander, is going to be restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. When he returned to the man of God with all his company and came and stood before him, he said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So please take a present from your servant now. So he wants to give him all this stuff. 
But he said, Elisha said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will take nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. So Elijah won't take the worldly wealth. He won't take the money because he's got more than that. He's got God. He's got a power, despite his seeming vulnerability. And the power is God's power. So I've been thinking about this. I've been thinking about perhaps our own lack of powerfulness in our church. Um, we don't have as many numbers as we, we used to. We've got a pastor that's here for 20 hours, but not more. Doesn't even have a, somebody to hold his hand and encourage him, like Jesus advises. We're little people. We're vulnerable people. But we are people who know Jesus. We are people with incredible power, if we would believe. Now, there was a verse that I missed out of the, um, the Luke 10 reading that says that um, uh, the fields are white for harvest, and the, but the, the labourers are few. Actually, there's probably enough, there's heaps, enough labourers. It's labourers with the right heart that we need. We don't necessarily need a whole bunch of stuff, but we do need the right heart. We need to be serving the right God. We need to be doing the right things. So, in thinking about these two passages, this is what I come up with. Firstly, Christian ministry is hard and frequently discouraging. Now, you might think, well, we're just going through a bit of a rough patch and it's just tough for us at the moment, but when it all goes back to normal, it'll all be good because that's how it is, isn't it? Well, not really. Um, if we have a look at Second uh, Corinthians... Um, this is how Paul describes his ministry. Okay, so here's the greatest apostle. I think he'd have a clue or two about missionary work. He says, We're afflicted in every way. We're crushed, perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body, the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who are who we who are live, we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. But um, Having the same spirit of faith, and according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak. Now you might think that as a Christian, if all you've got is your voice, that that's not enough. But it is enough. 
it is enough. If you know the truth, what you speak will be powerful. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise with Jesus us to be present with you. For all things are for your sake, that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Christian ministry is hard. There are more Christian martyrs in the world today than ever before. More Christians are getting killed. It's not big in the media, probably because Christians don't count much. Why? Because they're little people. But those Christians who know the Lord will bring, will bring blessing, will bring goodness to whole communities. Yesterday we uh, celebrated Rex's life. And it was interesting that even in talking about Rex, they couldn't do it without talking about Betty. Two. Not just one. Two. Rex and Betty. Did they have a lot of wealth? Did they have a lot of status and influence? No. Betty was a nurse and a very brave one. Rex could fix up cars. And they had an incredible ministry, an incredible power. So today's sermon's about the little people. And if you feel like you're a little person and that you can't do much, well, you've got a voice. You've got a king. You've got a faith. You've got everything you need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way you bless the little people. And the way you use us, Father, that's, that's just incredible. It's amazing. Father, would you help us to be little people who are strong in you and little people who do your works and little people that speak your name into our community, amongst ourselves to encourage. And would you help us to be strong in you and confident in you, knowing that in that we are more than conquerors. In Jesus' name, amen.